Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 655 with my guest, Eddie. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not the doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, The website for this show is metalpod.com. Go there. Um, You can support the show there um, financially or non-financially by uh, filling out a survey. That's a big part of the show, and I always appreciate when people go there and pour their souls into the uh, into the surveys. Um, and speaking of waiting room, we had our first uh, Patreon supporter support group on Sunday, and it was awesome. There were nine of us, and, uh, and, and the, the um, access to it is for people who are at the $20 a month and above level on, on Patreon. And I didn't really, I suppose I was anxious about how it was going to go. A group of people who've never met each other, uh, I had all kinds of fears in my, in my head, as I do with everything. <laughs> and none of them came true. It was awesome. People were open, honest, vulnerable. It was a super safe, safe and respectful place. And uh, I can't wait to do it again this Sunday. It's, uh, we do it at four o'clock Pacific time, seven o'clock Eastern time. We're going to be doing it every Sunday. And one of the participants said, how about we name this support group, the waiting room? And I was like, oh my God, that's so fantastic. And so I invite you to come join us this Sunday. We talked about a lot of good shit, a lot of good shit. Um, the talk, I did Wednesday night. Some of you local Southern California people came and attended and uh, kind of told my life story, talked about the how support group saved my life, things I've learned doing the podcast, and I'm told it went well. <laughs> the mean voice in my head was like, oh, buddy, you left so much out. You, I have, I have some, I, I have a bit of a, I think it's a neurological condition in my left hand where it sometimes shakes. And so I, 
people I imagine thought that I was nervous. And you know what? I probably was a little bit nervous, the perfectionist in me. Um, but, you know, I, I poured my heart out and I guess that's all I can do. But I felt a lot of love and support from the people who showed up, people from my support group, listeners. Um, I even got a, uh, a gift of Albanian gummies from the uh, the listener whose who's loves we read a couple of weeks ago. Had a nice conversation with somebody who managed to get out of a um, physically abusive relationship and she discovered the podcast right around that time and she was saying how much the podcast has brought her comfort and that's why I started it in, in 2011. So... Yeah, other than me judging myself, it was it was great. So thank you to those that came out. Do I share this? I guess I guess so. Um my girlfriend got free tickets last weekend to a, a concert at the Hollywood Bowl honoring Quincy Jones for his 90th birthday. And an amazing lineup of guests playing all these fantastic songs of his, songs from the album. Thriller, theme songs he did in the 60s, just incredible. Stevie Wonder was there, and it could not have been better except for the fact that the universe put two dumpster fire of drunk people behind me. These two women screaming at everything as if they were the center of the concert, six inches behind my ear, we were sitting in front of them, shrieking at everything. And it's just, it, it was an hour and a half of mental gymnastics, and everybody around them was, you know, kind of giving them dirty looks like, Come on, really? And of course, I broke out my <laughs> my passive-aggressive six-shooter. And it wasn't bad enough that they were screaming six inches from my ear, but they were dancing and falling into us. And one of them had a purse around her neck, and when she would whip around, the purse would spin and hit me in the back of the head. And at one point, I was like, stop hitting me with your purse. And she just looked through me like, like I was on TV. And I had to find a place of acceptance. And the way that I got there, I don't know if I ever truly got there, but find a place where I didn't explode and scream at them because that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to go for the jugular. I wanted to insult them. I wanted to humiliate them. You know, there was that voice in my head that that was like, you need to verbally dominate them to get this anger out of you. And I know that that is not a healthy choice. For me, So I did not do that. And the way that I got to a place where I could keep my mouth shut was by remembering all the times I was that person. I was that sloppy drunk where people didn't call me on my bullshit. And that helped. 
And I learned that in support groups. I know, you're probably tired of me talking about support groups. but So back to the uh, talk. One of the things that I did there was I gave people sheets of paper to fill out fears, loves, and things about themselves that they are ashamed of. And we also put it out to people on Instagram, and I want to read a couple of those. Uh, one person said, I have a fear of dying alone. It doesn't get more condensed than that. I mean, dying alone. Could you distill one one of life's fears more succinctly than that? Uh, somebody shared, I love the first smell of the forest after a long week at work. Oh, that's a good one. Somebody else, I love how wet my shirt is after a workout I didn't want to do. It's like I get to wring the doubt out of it. That's so good. Somebody else shared, I love the sound of leaves crunching under my feet in the fall. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna put a tag on that one and say that the smell of decaying leaves in the fall. There's something so beautifully melancholy about that. Somebody else wrote, I love that fact that movie theaters are making a comeback. Thank you for that. Um, And then these were filled out in person. Uh, Somebody who did not share their name uh, shared the fear. I fear I'll never be able to participate in life to the extent I should. I can't imagine how many people feel that same way. You know, and my version of that is that I'm not doing life right. And everybody can see it except me. They shared a shame. I'm ashamed of the fact that I'm still struggling with the same issues I struggled with 35 years ago. You are not alone in that. Sending you some love. Somebody else who uh, did not share their name uh, shared a fear. A fear that the climate change is much worse than most people admit and that I shouldn't buy a house in California because it would be unbearably hot in 10 plus years. They shared some shames. When I was in middle school, bullying my autistic stepbrothers, following my mom's example. But today I try to connect and support him now. Uh, They shared a love, the feeling in my stomach when it's full of warm tea. That's a good one. And I have an empty stomach. Warm tea makes me nauseous. This was filled out by Jets at the uh, at the show, and they share these fears. That I'm old, fat, not smart, awkward, unlikable, unlovable, selfish, and ungrateful. I think you covered them all, man. I fear being abandoned and dying broke and alone, and I'm afraid that my survey is too messy. Well... <laughs> if you're listening, welcome. I hope you feel right at home. They're shamed. I'm ashamed for being undisciplined and lazy. I stole money from my mother and sister when I was a kid. And they share a couple of loves. Stepping into the acid house after a hot walk. That's a good one. And I love my dog's breath. Why is it we love our dog's stinky breath? I mean, within reason. 
like my dog Ivy in the last year or two of her life, it, it, even the biggest dog lover, I don't think could enjoy it. It was, it was rotten. But Gracie's breath, she's in that sweet spot where it's just a little stinky. This was filled out by, uh, at the show by OK Mario Brother and their fears. That I'll be homeless and people will think all of the horrible things that I currently think about homeless people. Their shames. That I think horrible things about homeless people and lack the compassion that my ex-girlfriend showed towards them and their loves. I love my ex-girlfriend even though I couldn't stand her and she couldn't stand me. I don't know. that. I think you guys should have got married. This is filled out by Catherine at the show and her shame. She writes, I hate when I start overthinking during a conversation and think I'm not saying enough or too much. So I talk more or less and then I immediately regret it and feel stupid. Her loves, the little tufts of hair on my cat's paws. And I love complicated, layered cloud patterns before or after a storm. Those are awesome. Thank you for those, Catherine. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine, from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And then this, uh, before we, we get to the interview with uh, Eddie, this is an awful moment filled out by Ampersand Soup. And uh, I believe we've read surveys from this person before and they write, when my mom passed away this year of alcoholism, I inherited all of her things, including dozens of self-help books, self-improvement books, workbooks, and addiction books. If she did read them, it was washed away with drunken delusion and the kind of pain that settles in after spending far too much time alone and sick. After sifting through and reading bits and pieces, I thought to myself, man, these books deserve a bad review. 
my consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this (laughs) I'm here with Eddie, which is a pseudonym um, we, we want to protect your identity because you're going to be sharing family secrets, uh, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of good stuff. Um, welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, you reached out to me via email over a year ago. It was, yeah. April of 22. And do you remember what you shared with me in that email? I remember, I think most of it, um, I had said that. I was uh, interested in coming on your show if you were interested in having me as a guest because there's some aspects of my childhood that I thought maybe somebody else out there somewhere has had similar experiences. I've yet to meet somebody very much like me. So I'm like, you know, maybe if I tell my story, it'll help somebody else. Um, Some of the things I had said was um, having some like, Gender identity um, issues, um, food, um, eating disorder issues, um, uh, history of uh, sexual abuse with my family, and uh, manipulation around gender and eating. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, among some other things. So, Uh, And thank you for for sharing that and being willing to talk about it. Um, One of the things that that really struck me that I wanted to know more about was your father uh, raising you um, as as a boy, despite that not being your preference or desire. Yes. Um, Yeah, I was told from a very young age. by both of my parents um, that I was, quote, supposed to be a boy. Um, I believe my mother was actually the first person that had said it, that I was supposed to be a boy. They thought I was going to be a boy, um, uh, you know, that your father really wanted a boy. And uh, and some of my earliest memories of the two of them are them saying some version of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, he did a lot of like emotional manipulation um saying and doing certain things to basically give me clues that uh this is how a boy would do it and when i was your age as a boy this is how i would do this thing this is how i would eat this is how i would play and then he would sort of look at me like expectantly like "Mm -hmm." and now you mirror that um which i learned to do from like a pretty early age for instance for instance, um, specifically with eating, um, boys were supposed to eat um, really, really quickly and a lot and always want seconds. And he would talk a lot about how he and his uh, three brothers, um, when their their mother would like serve food, they would like fall on it like a pack of wild dogs and fight each other for seconds. And um, that's how he wanted me to eat. 
And um, so I would eat more than I wanted to pretty much every meal um, because that's how a boy was supposed to eat, apparently very quickly and a lot. Um, And uh, there were certain ways that like I was supposed to play, um, you know, very like rough and tumble, a lot of wrestling um, and, you know, uh, forever trying to build a tree fort and Mm -hmm. uh, things that, again, boys were supposed to do. Um, And, you know, I never really understood why boys couldn't also play with dolls. Um, which I did, but I would do that sort of more in secret. And, um, and yeah, there was a lot of like, a lot of it was food based. Um, and he would also do like, I remember one day he came in to my bedroom that I shared with my three sisters, but I was alone in the bedroom and I could hear him like running up the stairs, which was always like a audio clue that like something really weird or bad parents don't run up the stairs with joy Uh, (laughs) i can't wait to share this (laughs) new surprise with you yeah um yeah and in particular in like the house that i grew up and if there was running it was yeah somebody was gonna get hit or yelled at or in trouble and or or just something weird was gonna happen and um anyway so i was in my uh shared bedroom with my sisters excuse me the bedroom that i shared with them they were not in the room and i was playing with a doll um which i was kind of doing in secret because i knew he didn't really like that because that's not how boys were supposed to play and he came bounding up the stairs and i like i remember my whole body getting tense and then he like came sort of crashing into the bedroom and he had a like paper like lunch bag like a brown lunch bag crumpled up in his hand and he was like you know eyes wild and so excited like almost like like shaking with excitement and he like thrust the bag at me and he's like i've got a surprise for you and i'm just feeling like dread like you know the like blood just draining out of my face and i'm like whatever's in this bag i don't want i know i don't want but i know that i have to not only open it but pretend to be excited because whatever he's giving me, if I don't play with it correctly, um, there'll be some sort of punishment. Um, and so I took the bag from him and I opened it and I turned it upside down and I shook the bag out cause I couldn't really see what was in it. And I shook the bag out on my bedspread and a squirrel tail came out. Like a bloody squirrel what tail. <laughs> the fuck? Yeah. Like, I'm laughing about it now, but I can tell you as a child, it was, it was not funny. It was horrifying. It was like a scene out of like a, you know, a horror movie, really. Yeah. A bloody squirrel tail on my clean bedspread. Um, and it had like literally like blood on the end of it and little like m- mites or, you know, little bugs on it in the way mm. that like you know, a dead animal will sure. accumulate bugs. And, um, I, uh, of course was looking at it just in horror. And he then was looking at me with like, you know, these big expectant eyes and a big smile on his face, kind of like, ah, uh? mm? and I didn't know what to do because I'm like, all right, if this was like Lincoln logs, I could figure out how a boy would play with those or a stick even, but how is a boy supposed to play with a bloody squirrel tail and I didn't do anything. And then eventually he said, uh, pick it up. 
and I just sort of almost as if I had like an, um, somebody else controlling my hand. Like I just kind of remember me, like my hand kind of moving and he said, pick it up. And I picked it up and I just was holding it in the air. And then he said, play with it. But again, I'm like, I don't, how do you play with like a bloody squirrel tail? You fan yourself like you're Scarlett <laughs> O'Hara. Exactly. But would a boy do that? <laughs> would a boy fan himself like he's Scarlett O'Hara? So I, I, uh, again, I didn't do anything. And then he got very angry and, you know, his voice raising and he started snapping at me and basically said like, when I was a boy, I would have loved something like this. And then he told me this story about how um, he and his brothers uh, killed a raccoon and cut its tail off so that they could play Davy Crockett. And basically that's what he wanted me to do was he wanted me to put it on my head and pretend that I was Davy Crockett. I'm like, the last thing I want is to put this bloody bug infested squirrel tail on my head. And, uh, and, and when I didn't, he then left my room in a great big huff uh, slammed the door and, and said that he wasn't going to play with me anymore. And um, and if I remember correctly, I think it was probably a couple days before he spoke with me again. And he just he would do this thing where he would just essentially pretend like I didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And if I came into the room, he wouldn't acknowledge me, he wouldn't look at me. And uh, again, if I remember correctly, it was like a couple of days of like stone cold silence um, because I didn't play correctly with this squirrel tail. And uh, after he had left, I remember like quietly like sneaking into the upstairs bathroom to wash my hands because I, I just felt yeah. like my whole body felt gross. And then not long later, I don't know exactly how much time went by, but I remember my mother then coming up into the room and I could hear her kind of bounding up the stairs. And I was like, nothing good is coming from this either. Mm-hmm. And at that point I had put the tail in the bag and I just, I don't know, I was like going to hide it, I guess under my bed or something. I don't know, or or keep it in case he wanted me to like play with it. I don't know. And she then burst into the room and was like, what did your father give you? And I didn't want to say, and then, you know, then she was getting mad at me because I didn't want to say anyhow. So I showed her what was in the bag and she just like, like huffed and snapped it out of my hand and left with it. And I, ne- I don't know if she threw it out or just put it back in the street. I have no idea what happened. It just sort of disappeared. But then neither one of them spoke with me. It was like a couple of days before either parent like <laughs> acknowledged me because I, I did it wrong, whatever it was. Right. And um, yeah, there was, you know, other, other moments where he would give me a task that something that a boy was supposed to do play a certain way. Um, uh, another example, if you'd like an, if you'd like one is um, he announced that we were building a tree fort um, in the worst tree fort tree uh, on our, like in our yard, you know, the tree fort tree should be like a little bit more low to the ground and, and like a V that you can climb up into. And he picked the one that's like really tall and straight and just impossible to build anything up. And he also had no like carpentry skills. And I was probably like eight. So I certainly didn't have any, <laughs> And um, so he announced that we're building a tree fort and he had scavenged um, driftwood from the beach that we lived near. And uh, so not a straight board in the bunch and certainly not enough to even make like one whole floor. 
And uh, anyway, so he had gotten this wood. He found a hammer, some like nails, but were, you know, a couple of them were definitely rusty. I remember that. And um, he set to nailing some handhold boards, like going up the Mm -hmm. tree trunk. And I remember part of my job was to like hold some of the nails while he was swinging the hammer. And I absolutely thought like he's going to hit me with his hammer. And um, and that miraculously didn't happen. Thank goodness. But every time I would flinch, he would sort of yell at me um, for not being manly enough, I guess. And, uh, and then anyway, so we finally got all of the handholds up and he climbed up there and nailed two boards across the lowest branch, which mm-hmm. was not low as far as an eight year old is concerned, climbed back down and then demanded that I go play in the fort um, which was just two lone branches, uh, excuse me, uh, like planks up in the mm-hmm. one branch. And I was terrified because it seemed really high and the handholds were very narrow and I didn't want to do it. Um, but I know that he, you know, he was saying things like boys are supposed to be brave. And uh, like when I was your age, I had a tree fort and my brothers and I loved playing it. And I, I remember trying really hard to climb like to be like the brave boy that he wanted me to be, but I couldn't do it. And, uh, and that was another moment where he like walked off in a huff, ignored me like for a couple of days, didn't speak with me. And he just left me out in the yard, like next to the tree. And I just was like, I don't know what to do. Like I can't go play. I can't play like a boy correctly, but I also can't just go in the house now because he's in there and like, I can't be in his space. So I just, stood outside next to the tree for a couple hours before like maybe I'll probably call them for like dinner time or something. Um, your, your eyes look like you're getting emotional. Oh, yeah. Right I, Cause I'm like, I get angry when I think about it. Yeah. Like, and there were so many moments where, you know, like our mother knew what he was doing. Like not just this weird, um, you know, boys are supposed to act a certain way. And, you know, I am like a cisgendered woman And, uh, but there was also like, he was sexually abusing my middle sister and he used to like, uh, physically assault my, our oldest sister. And he was doing what I now know is grooming to me, which I, you know, I didn't know it at the time. I just sort of knew that he was like weird and that he was acting strangely and asking me to do odd things. Um, but now I know, like I have the terminology for mm-hmm. it. Um, and I, did you know at the time that he was sexually abusing your I other did. sister? And, uh, how did you know that? And if any of yeah. this stuff you're not comfortable sharing, please, please don't. Yes. Um, I am comfortable talking about it. I mean, you know, in the way that like, who could really be comfortable talking about stuff right. like this, but, but yeah, um, I, um, gosh, how old was I? I think it was maybe four years old and my middle sister is uh, three years older than me. Um, And I was in the living room. The house that we grew up in is like a long, almost like a railroad car, like very long, narrow Mm -hmm. home. And uh, she was in the kitchen and I was in the living room and I remember her like running at me from like, you know, it seemed like this long distance away and she came running at me. And as she was running, she was saying, run, run, he's coming which is like horrifying. Yeah. And I knew who she was talking about. And I was already like afraid of our father. He just, everything he did and said was 
weird. And even something simple like a hug was very fraught. So I was already afraid of him. And, you know, here comes my older sister, the middle sister who, you know, was like um, my like sun and moon. She was Mm. everything I could ever want to be. And like, you know, the person you love the most comes running, screaming at you, run, run. So I like got up and I started running. And I remember she grabbed my hand and we both ran up the stairs to our shared bedroom. Our older sister was not in the room. I don't know where she was, maybe like outside playing or something. Um, And we burst into the room. I remember she slammed the door and then we could hear him like running the length of the house, running up the stairs. And then he burst into the room. He then came in, slammed the door behind himself and looking at her, but talking to me, I remember him like pointing at me and sometimes you just know, like he was looking directly at her, but he was speaking to me and he said, get in the closet. And I didn't move. And then he said it again, like very forcefully a couple of times getting louder and louder. And then finally I went and I went into our like bedroom closet and he said, close the door. And he had to yell it at me a couple of times before I finally like slowly closed the door. And then as the door is closing, I was kind of like keeping my eyes like close to the door frame so I could get like one last little peek, one last little peek. And as I was shutting the door, I remember my sister jumping up onto her bed and like burrowing behind her pillows, like trying to hide basically. And then he then was walking towards her very slowly, like stalking her. And he then sat down on one of the bed. And I remember his hand like reaching towards her foot, which was like just sticking out from her little pillow. And then I just was like, I don't know what's happening, but I don't want to see this. And in a weird way, I was like, he's right. I should shut the door. And I shut the door and I just sat in the closet in the dark for, gosh, I don't even know how long. I mean, it could have just been a few minutes. It could have been a half hour. I really have no concept. Um, but then I remember like just like losing some sense of time because I didn't hear him leave. The next thing I remember is her little voice saying like, it's okay, you can come out. And he was gone. And she was like on the bed, just like slumped, like almost like she had no bones. And uh, I went and I sat next to her. And she told me, um, uh, he makes me, he makes me, um, touch his thing and I hate it and he's gross and I hate him. And I didn't say anything. I remember just like our two bodies kind of like pressed next to each other. And I was like, well, that's really all I can do in this moment is just like physically comfort her because, you know. I was like four. I had no control over anything. And uh, anyway, she said, uh, then I remember she grabbed my arm really hard and yanked it and said, uh, don't ever tell anyone. And, uh, and I, and I never did actually like, it wasn't until, gosh, how old are we? I think I was probably like 26 and we, she and I had a really big fight and she was, being really unkind and saying some really unkind things and, you know, saying like, uh, you don't know how bad I had it as a kid and you got, you got off so easy. He never did anything to you. And, you know, like 
as if I had no memory of anything that happened. And, and then I had told her like the story that I just told you about hiding in the closet and everything. And I was like, no, actually I remember all of it. Like you told me not to tell anything and I never did, but like, I remember everything. Excuse me. And, uh, yeah, so I knew like, um, again, that was like one of my earliest memories. Um, I always knew that he was like, you know, I didn't have the words for, I wouldn't have been able to say like sexual abuse, but I always knew that that's what he was doing. And, uh, um, there was another moment not long after that. Cause I, I, I don't think that I was even in school yet. I probably was still like in like preschool or something where, my sisters and I were sitting in this, um, the front porch playing and he came in and he sat down, um, in a chair in front of us. And like, you know, we went from like laughing and playing to like stone cold silence. Like the second he walked into the room, like done. And, uh, he sat down and I remember he didn't have a shirt on and he was wearing like yellow shorts that were like, you know, like eighties shorts or like a little, you know, shorter and he pulled them up and he spread his legs like, you know, a, a real big like man spread. And uh, and my sister, the middle sister, I remember her saying, like whispering, um, like, don't look at it. And of course, you know, I'm like, look at what? Look at what? And um, and it was his penis, which he had like purposely like made sure that it like was like dangling out of his little like pant, mm -hmm. uh, the shorts opening. And, um, the whole time our mother was on the other end of the house, like slamming the kitchen cabinets, which she never did. And I know that that was her signal for him to like, stop whatever he was doing. Um, because she was very like, don't slam doors in the house and, you know, close things nicely and don't scrape your chair. And she was, you know, in the kitchen, like slamming pots and pans down on the stove and slamming the fridge shut and slamming all the cabinets shut. And um, and she maybe didn't know exactly what he was doing, but she knew that he was doing something weird with us alone in that room. And she was sending out these visual, excuse me, audio clues to like stop, which, um, you know, she had done before, like. Um, in those moments where I had said, like, you know, our parents would ignore, um, would ignore me, um, if, you know, a slam of a door would be like, uh, a clue of like, you need to stop what you're doing or do this instead. And, um, so, uh, and anyways, I did get confirmation from her just a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I basically, uh, verbally cornered her and was essentially like, did you know, did you know what he was doing? And, and she did confirm that she did know, I think what her exact words were. I always knew that he was doing something weird. I didn't know what it was, but he, I knew he was doing something weird. And then the real gut punch was, um, she said essentially, but it was only your middle sister. <laughs> and, and she said basically like, well, he wasn't doing anything to you. It was, it was only her. So like, basically like if he had been doing more stuff right. to more of the children, then I would have done something, but it was, yeah, he right. only did something to one of you, which is probably what she told herself yeah. to be able to, to live with herself. Yes, absolutely. Because she, she knew that he was, um, for example, like he would hit our oldest sister 
Um, and I know that she knew because she's actually the one that told me. Um, there was a moment where uh, he was apparently trying to teach her multiplication tables. This was like sometime in elementary mm-hmm. school. And my sister, the oldest sister, has um, uh, like, I'll just say, undiagnosed learning disor- uh, disability. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that she ever got any sort of formal diagnosis. She is on like disability right now and just has some like learning and like behavioral issues. And like, you know, I think if she was a kid nowadays, she probably would do really well with, um, you know, inclusive classes and things like that. Mm-hmm. That didn't exist when we were kids. And um, and you're how old? I'm 44. Okay. Um, and I'm the youngest of the three. Um, so anyhow, apparently one day he was trying to teach her uh, timetables and she couldn't get it, and he probably is a shitty teacher anyway. Um, I th- no, I think he would be very good. He sounds patient. <laughs> very patient man, yes. yes. And um, and wants the best for you. Oh, my God. Seriously. Yeah, he <laughs> yes. just wants her to learn. And uh, he apparently punched her in the face and then told her, uh, like, well, you tell your teachers that you walked into a doorknob um, if anybody asks what happened. And this was my mom is the one that told me this. Um, among other stories, that's mm-hmm. just one of of several that I remember she had relayed to me about him hitting her. So yeah, I think absolutely that was something that she told herself um, to make things okay. Um, but part of the family lore is that nothing ever happened to me specifically. Um, so the older sister, other was, than being told that that your gender isn't your gender, right? Yes, and being made to eat more than I ever wanted to. But you got to play in tree forts, so why are you acting like such a baby? I don't know. This awesome tree fort that uh, definitely had a whole floor and four walls, absolutely. Um, I don't remember what I was just going to say. Pardon me. Um, I'm not really sure. I was going to make some other point. Anyways. Well, um, I I, I feel like you have uh, really painted a picture uh, for us, and I and, and I appreciate you going back down into the icky yes. to uh, to share it with us. And I think what I'd be interested in now is the ripples of all of this. Um, yes, once you left the house, or maybe even before you you left the house, as you became a teenager or an adult. And how it has affected your relationships, your view of yourself, claiming your yes. authentic gender. Oh, gosh. Well, um, I oh, I do also want to talk about uh, the food and eating. Oh, yeah, um, I yeah. do. That was what I was going to, uh, a yeah. point that I was going to make, but we can come back to that. Um, no, you can share oh, that Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, yes, and I will talk about the, um, like, I, I guess I'll call it some sort of gender dysphoria. It's been actually really hard to figure out, like, terminology for how I feel or, or yeah. what I am. And one um, of the things you shared with me is you're so afraid of offending the trans community yes. by not using the right words. I think anybody listening uh, right now is so on your side, <laughs> they're giving you the leeway to express yourself in okay. the way that you need to express yourself. Yes, I believe that you're right. I hope that you're right, that people will give me some uh, some grace Um to trip over my words. Um, so the eating, um, which is tied into the gender identity, because again, like I was told that boys were supposed to eat a certain way, a certain amount, very vigorously. Um, and I learned from pretty early age to 
make myself eat more than I wanted to, um, to be the boy that he wanted me to be. Um, there was, uh, do you mind if I share a story? Sure. Yeah, of, of, yeah. yeah. I um, love, I love stories. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so there's one specific, uh, Story. So we were going to church because, of course, we were a good <laughs> church-going Christian family, of course. Um, and it was uh, Sunday morning, and um, my uh, mother had gotten me ready. I was still pretty young at this point. I, I'm guessing maybe six or seven. Um, so she had gotten me ready, put me in a dress that I didn't want to wear, Um and and part of it was that I actually didn't want to wear the dress. And part of it was that I knew that he would see me in the dress and, and have like disdain for what I was wearing. Um, but anyway, she put me in this little dress with the tights and the patent leather shoes and sat me in the kitchen um, to eat breakfast while she and my older sisters finished getting ready, doing hair and, and makeup and whatever else was going on. And it was just my father and I in the kitchen and he offered to pour me a bowl of cereal um, which I said yes, and to my um, shock, he took down the big pasta bowl instead of one of the smaller cereal bowls. Um, and so he gave me the pasta bowl, took down the cereal, poured cereal to the brim of this big pasta bowl, grabbed the milk, topped it off with an insane amount of milk, gave me a big, uh, the big soup spoon, and said, "Okay, eat it." And now I'm given an order. I know I have to finish the bowl. So I eat the whole thing. I drink all the milk. I drop the spoon in the bowl. He grabs the bowl, fills it back up with cereal, tops it back up with milk, the whole thing, and hands it back over to me and says, okay, eat it. And now I'm like, Ugh. I pick up the spoon and I eat the whole bowl. I drink all the milk. I drop the spoon in the bowl and he filled it up again. This big pasta bowl filled it up again to the brim with cereal, to the brim with milk. And now I'm like, I, I felt like I was already like my dress was like tight and my like stockings felt tight. And he could tell that, you know, I, I wasn't moving. I hadn't picked up the spoon yet. And then he said, well, you know, um, church service can get really long and you, you know how you get hungry afterwards and don't come complain to me if you're hungry afterwards because I'm giving you the cereal and, you know, the spiel about like, like I'm providing for you and I'm doing this nice thing for you. And, and so I, you know, I knew I was going to do it. I didn't want to, but I pick up the spoon. I ate the whole bowl, drank all the milk, dropped the spoon in the bowl and he poured another bowl. Full a fourth. Of, yes. A fourth, a fourth bowl. bowl, basically the whole box of cereal and probably damn near the whole jug of milk. And yeah, he poured a fourth bowl topped it off with milk again and demanded that I eat it. And now he, now he's not even saying like, like, Oh, go ahead, eat it. Or like, Oh, I'm, I'm giving you a thing. You should eat that thing. Like sort of like that wheedling voice. He wasn't even doing that. Now by the fourth bowl, he just leaned over and he goes, eat it. Like almost like I dare you eat it. And, um, and I did. And I pick up the spoon and I started eating and I'm like, I feel like I could barely move and I'm like, like full, like a drum. And I ate maybe one, two spoonfuls. And then my mom came out of the bathroom. Finally, they were finally done. It felt like they're doing hair and makeup for like three hours is what it felt like. She finally comes out of the bathroom, looks at me and says, you're still eating breakfast. 
why aren't you done yet? And I got up and I ran to the bathroom and I threw up everything. And I almost want to, I don't want to say the brand name of the cereal in case it still exists and people like it. I don't want to ruin that cereal for anybody, but there was a very specific color in the toilet bowl and it just was everywhere. And, um, you know, by the time she came out of the bathroom, of course, my father was long gone outside warming the car. He had magically disappeared and just basically left me in the kitchen by myself as if I was still eating my first bowl of cereal. And, um, you know, and then she yelled at me like, I don't know mm-hmm. what she thought I was doing. Um, but anyhow, that was like one of many incidences where I was forced to eat more than I wanted to in a manner that I didn't want to because that's how like a boy is apparently supposed to eat. And also just his own weird like entertainment to see mm-hmm. if he could make me do it. Um, so I've had a lot of like, uh, struggle, like unlearning weird eating behaviors that I learned from him. Um, and, and I was also like the emotional eating partner for my mother. Um, something that I've actually learned from your podcast is the concept of like spousification. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize really until I had like heard, um, whatever episode, um, that I first heard it on your podcast, that that's the dynamic that my mother and I had had for a really long time was that I essentially was like her little husband. I was like the Mm -hmm. little man of the house. And um, when she would emotionally eat and wanted an emotional eating partner, I was her go-to. So, you know, he was having me eat more than I wanted to because that's how boys eat. And then she would have me eat more than I wanted to um, because uh, if she's eating, she can't eat alone. And if I stop eating, then it's like, oh, well, you don't really love me. If you loved me, I you would Lord. keep eating with me. Yeah. So it's been a struggle <laughs> to figure out how to fucking eat, how to just eat is like, even still to this day, like I've, I've been working with a therapist for a couple of years. I just started working with a nutrition therapist this year. Um, and it's still like a struggle to figure out like, am I hungry? Am I not hungry? If I eat a little bit, am I done eating? Do I need to keep eating? It's I do a lot of work trying to figure that out. Um, and then and then also like trying to f- not, I don't know how to say it, like weird gender stereotypes about how like a woman is supposed to eat. Very dainty, very light, demure. And I feel like I'm eating like a wild animal, like a, like mm-hmm. a caveman or something. <laughs> so <laughs> like I can't do it right. Um, And then in terms of the gender identity. Hold that thought. We'll come back to the gender identity. What were your father, what were his parents like and what were were, uh, your mom's parents like? And we don't need to go into deep depth, Mm. but I'm just kind of, I'm always fascinated by the, the origins of people who are really abusive. Um, yeah, same. And I'll, I'll tell you the little that I know. Um, my, Father's father um, was an Episcopal pastor. That's enough. We can <laughs> case solved. <laughs> Just period. Um, uh, what I know of his parents, I have uh, just heard like secondhand. Um, from his brothers, my uncles. Um, I never met um, his father. And I have very little dealings with his mother, um, who has since passed. Um, what I was told is that they were 
um, they very much loved each other. Um, one of my uncles actually said the like they were obsessed with each other to the point that nobody else existed, including their own children. So my father and his brothers, I think um, from what I was told, essentially, as soon as they were old enough to like reach the doorknob, they were expected to go outside and play and do not come back home until it's nighttime. And like, just come back for dinner basically Mm -hmm. and get gone and don't come back. Um, So they were, you know, just set loose and they grew up. This was um, like a small town in like, like rural uh, Maryland and um, yeah, they would go run and, uh, you know, tear ass in the woods and get up to yeah. all sorts of trouble. Um, I do know that my father was um, sexually abused by a boy that lived in the neighborhood um, who I believe was older than him, maybe a teen. I'm not sure about that, though. Um, and he did tell his parents and they uh, did nothing. And essentially swept it under the carpet and basically just told him, all right, well, don't go over to his house anymore. The end. Um, And, you know, he never got any help or support or love or care around that. And unfortunately, instead of remembering, like, how horrible it felt and how, you know, used or abused he felt and abandoned by his own parents, um, he then unfortunately chose to turn that onto his Mm -hmm. um middle child and sexually abused her from I think age like four or five to like 14. And I remember confronting him about it one day on the phone and saying, well, you know, how could you and why? And she was a child and like, how could you look at her and, and be sexually attracted to her? And he screamed back, well, you know what happened to me? It happened to me when I was a child. And I was like, well, that doesn't make, that makes it worse. Right. Not better. That's not right. an excuse. And, um, you know, and there, and there, there is no excuse for it. Um, but, uh, and then my mother's parents, um, I never met either one of them. They both passed away before I was born. Um, I do know that my mother left her, um, country of origin for the United States. Um, uh, she had said that she came home from work one day. She was still living at home and like, contributing to the household bills and she was she was the youngest of uh nine or ten and anyway she came home from work one day and apparently there was some man sitting at the kitchen table that she didn't know and her mother apparently said um this is the man that you're going to marry um so why don't you sit down and get to know him and just some stranger that she was going to be foisted off on and um apparently right after that she started looking for jobs overseas and Mm. and just left um, and found her prince charming. In oh the my United god! States. Honestly, oh like yeah, god. just a comedy of errors of like how I came into being. Ugh, yeah, and uh, and I know she had said that her earliest memory was her father's funeral, um, and that's like one of her earliest childhood memories is is looking at his casket, um, and I know that she was sort of. Raised in a similar, like, uh, get thee gone type of way. Mm-hmm. Like, you're old enough to go outside, um, then you can go work on the farm. And right. if you're not working on the farm, go to school. And basically just don't be home. And that old school, like, children are seen and not heard, mm-hmm. I think, type of mentality. And, um, you know, unfortunately, they didn't have the capacity to say, like, this is the treatment that I got and I hated it. 
so let me do better. Right. Neither one of them had that capability. Yeah, it really, it, it's for a lot of, it seems like there's three ways it goes. Um, you repeat what happened to yeah. you in, in some version, um, or uh, you get help mm. and you change, or the pendulum swings and you do exactly the opposite and maybe a helicopter parent or try to control <laughs> yeah. the, you know, that the kid never feels any pain or is never around any situation that can't be predicted. Mm. And the, the child is kind of frozen with fear in this stunted, stunted state yeah. of their view of the world. And yeah. Um, Talk about, and this is where I, I cut you off mm -hmm. previously, was you were going to talk about the ripples of the gender yes. struggles. Um, yeah, so while my father was on this campaign to get me to act like a boy and play like a boy, uh, my mother was on the complete opposite end of the spectrum um, where she would force me to wear very, very frilly, girly things. And, um, you know, maybe she knew what he was doing and this was her trying to counteract. Um, that I was going to, you know, dress, quote, like a girl, mm -hmm. um, even though I, that's not what I wanted to wear. And so I, you know, basically spent my whole youth, like never having clothes that felt right for my body. And, you know, even like the bike that I had, I, I wanted like a boy's bike and she bought me this like <laughs> purple, what is it called? It was like purple sweet dreams with like a unicorn and a, and oh a banana seat. It was like an absolute horror show of like the girliest most feminine bike ever and uh and i just wanted like a little you know like dirt bike and um but anyhow so it got really tricky when i started like puberty essentially and you know started first having like a little crush on you know a kid in the class or something um because for okay sort of multi um level where I'm growing up in a uh, good Christian household. Um, so girls are not supposed to have crushes. That's, I don't know, you're a slut, I guess, if you like a boy. Um, but then I'm supposed to be a boy per my father. But if I have a crush on a boy, that means I'm a homosexual, which is a sin. Um, so I, I can't have a crush on anybody i guess but i also can't then have a crush on a girl because i'm also a girl so that's also a sin um and it's this is where it gets tough like trying to find like the words to even describe yeah how i how i feel where like i was yeah i don't know it still gets so like complicated so i I couldn't dress the way that I wanted to. I think probably until like high school is when I finally. And how, I, how did you want to dress? I wanted to just wear like jeans and a t-shirt, mm -hmm. you know? And like, I think part of it was that there was a brief period of time where I thought like, maybe my father is right. And I am actually a boy or I am supposed to be a boy because there were things that were appealing about being a boy. Um, boys got to, uh, play in a way that girls didn't. And I remember at school, like the boys, you know, like play kickball and baseball and the girls were supposed to like just swing on the swing set. And, um, you know, and I wanted to like run around and, and anyhow, um, 
I feel like, yeah, there was a window where I was like, oh, maybe I actually am supposed to be a boy because of their like physical freedoms that they seem to get and like the clothes that they could wear that then are tied into their physical freedoms. It's easier to climb a tree if you're wearing, you know, mm-hmm. like jeans and a t-shirt as opposed to like a frilly little dress. Um, and like sneakers that can get dirty that you can run around in as opposed to like little patent leather shoes. Um, and when I then got into like high school and, you know, basically had my first job and I had my own money and then I was like, okay, you can't now not tell me what to wear because I can buy my own clothes. I bought like clothes from the girl section, but as close to boys clothes as I could basically get. So like straight legged jeans with no decoration. What did it feel like the first time you put those on oh, it was amazing. Look to yourself in the in the mirror. Yeah, it was amazing. I think the only thing I wanted to be different was if I could have been flat chested. Um, that would have been the only thing is that I yeah, I, you know, just like a basic like the T-shirt that you're wearing, just like a graphic T-shirt and like basic straight leg jeans. And I felt like 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 I could like breathe. Mm-hmm. I felt like, yeah, I felt like myself and not having to like wear a, a dress and anything frilly or pink, which was like the worst fucking color. And of course, our childhood bedroom was wall to wall pink. Um, and I, I know now that part of the desire where I felt like, oh, maybe I actually am supposed to be a boy. There was an appeal in like not looking sexual in the way that like girls, the way that we were supposed to dress or the way that we would dress or the images that you'd see mm-hmm. um, looked very sexual, right. form-fitting clothing, you know, uh, cleavage showing or your like midriff showing, tight jeans that you can see all your curves. And boys got to dress in these just very like plain, boxy, mm-hmm. shapeless clothes and weren't sexualized in the same way. Um, and there was an appeal in that. And... um. And, uh, but anyways, yeah, so it was tough, like becoming a teenager and trying to like fit in with the other girls while not wanting to look like them. I never wanted to wear makeup. For example, I didn't want to wear jewelry, even though right now I have like a little bit of jewelry on, but this is like, you know, maybe in the past, like three years, I finally was like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, maybe jewelry is okay. And you know, maybe when I hit sixties, I'll, I'll finally, (laughs) I'll finally like makeup or something. Um, but I, I dressed very much as close to boy clothes as I could get in the girl section. And um, very rarely would I wear something like uh, form-fitting because on the off chance that I did, um, you know, I would usually get like catcalled or, um, you know, a suggestive remark said about my physical shape. And I, you know, hated that. And I didn't want to be like, sexualized in that way not to say that i didn't have any like sexual drive or thoughts i definitely did um um but i think i just wanted more control and mm-hmm. you know when you're being objectified it's like your control is taken away yeah and um i think i think one of the biggest casualties of being raised with a narcissistic parent is when we become an adult we get so disconnected from trusting our intuition or our integrity and Mm -hmm. we second guess anything we feel like we want or we need yes and what is right what is wrong yeah 
Yes. Oh, that's a hundred percent true. Absolutely. The, the, the amount of times that I've thought to myself, like, am I, am I, am I hungry? Even something as simple as, am I actually hungry? I have to question that. Um, yeah. Are these the clothes that I really want to wear? Is this my actual gender? Um, do I want to drive that particular car? Do I want this car? Everything, everything was a question. And yes, unfortunately I would, I would say that like, you know, it's maybe not cool to like go around diagnosing people, but I'm pretty sure both of my parents are pretty like narcissistic. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. I think that's a pretty safe, <laughs> safe guess. Yes. Um, oh, another thing that I um, learned from your podcast, and I would say thank you so much for talking about the um, running on empty book. Oh, Dr. Janice oh, Webb. My... Read it, read it, read it, read it. About, read it. And it's about emotional neglect yes. and how that gets minimized. That was like unscrewing the top of my head and like, uh, just being shot out of a cannon at the same time. That book absolutely changed my life. And um, yeah, reading about emotional neglect and narcissistic parents. And I feel like almost every line in that book was like, yes, oh my God, like, yes, finally. Isn't that the best? It was amazing. It was amazing. Um, so yes, thank you for like, uh, thank you for like telling the world about that book. Uh, I, I don't think if I, if I hadn't listened to your podcast, I probably never would have like, listen or read it i should say yeah um so that made a, a huge impact um but yeah so the i do feel an affinity with transgender folks and i you know had like i had mentioned to you i don't want to co-opt anybody's like experiences i don't or think thoughts. It, i don't think it comes across as I, that okay good i um, I, I don't, I don't think it does either, but, um, yeah, but I certainly don't want to like, yeah, take anybody's words or experiences for my own, but it seems like the closest that I can get to describing how I feel is that like, I, I still to this day have work to do around like, is my body the actual body that it's supposed to be? And like unpicking the thoughts that were put into my head about like, how I'm supposed to look, how I'm supposed to act, how I'm supposed to eat, um, and and my gender identity. It's it it feels like I am like transgender, like adjacent is maybe like the mm -hmm. closest terminology that I can right. get. Like I I do understand what it feels like to not like, for example, look in the mirror and like what you see matches how you feel. Or even what you feel matching what you want. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I don't really know, like, if, if I could just say, like, thank you to the transgender community yeah. for, like, giving me terminology, I guess. You know what I would love is if they feel like it, any folks who are listening that uh, are part of the trans community, uh Email me so I can pass what they write along to you because I have the feeling there is a ton of emotional support and I hope so. And I would imagine a lot of them feel like your authenticity being denied is the mm -hmm. issue, yeah. not whether it's one way or another. It's you are being told you are not you. Your intuition is not correct. Your yeah. feelings don't matter. Yes. Yes. The, yeah, the intuition being like stripped away, very damaging. I, 
Um, you know, I've been married for 17 years um, to a, a cisgendered man. Um, and I think I was probably maybe five years or so into our marriage before I, I had this epiphany where I was like, oh my God, I'm a woman. Like, holy shit, I'm like a cisgendered heterosexual woman, period. I'm like, I, I can't believe it took me that long to like, figure that out. And Did you know it intellectually, but that was the first time you felt it? Um, or was it an intellectual breakthrough it, I, as I would well? Say, I would say both. I would say both. Like, um, you know, I felt like almost as if it was like a weird sort of like cheating that I was doing on my husband where I felt very like queer, but I'm like, I don't. I don't know how to like sort of come out to him in a way because, you know, I'm, I'm in fact, like, I'm not a lesbian. I am not uh, a trans person. Um, so I'm like, I don't like, how do you, if you're like cis het, how do you come out to right. your cis het right. husband? Like we're both two straight people in a like monogamous relationship. There is nothing to come out to. So it was just sort of this odd, like... It's like you came out to yourself. I came out to myself as a, yes, as a woman. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> it actually felt, it did, in fact, felt really good. And I think that was probably like, um, you know, the first time that I was like, okay, maybe I will actually experiment with like, you know, wearing a dress and not just, you know, dressing in like, quote unquote, the sort of boy clothes. Um, and yeah, it's been a a fun and also frustrating journey to like reclaim, you know, the sort of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like performative, I guess, femininity mm. where like, it's okay for me to look feminine. I'm not like harming myself or anybody by putting on a dress. I'm no one's going to get mad at me as opposed to in the past where I would, you know, if I didn't act and sort of look boyish, I would get in trouble. My father would, um, be mean or ignore me or punish me in some way. And, uh, you know, and that doesn't exist anymore. Like I'm, I'm not harming anybody by like wearing a frilly skirt and like earrings or something. Like it's okay. <laughs> it's just such an odd thing. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like I need like another 10 years to, to get I like love, one complete sentence. I love that you can laugh about the absurdity and the pain and mm -hmm. not do it in place of feeling sad yeah. and angry. And I don't know, that that to me is the the silver lining in the awful is that, um, I don't know, there's something so much deeper when you laugh about the pile of shit yeah. um, than, I don't know, I don't know what to compare it to, but it's it's very freeing to it hit is. that point where you can do that again, not in place of the vulnerability in the process, yes. but yes. during it. But during it, yes, and not like yeah, like you said, not swapping one for the other. Um, it does feel it does feel good to be able to, um, not uh, how do I say this? To be able to time travel, but not stay there. So I can I can visit the past. I can acknowledge the past. I can laugh about the past, but I don't have to live there, which is what I was doing for a really, really long time, stuck in the memories, replaying things, reliving things. And I wouldn't have had the capacity to 
laugh about anything really that happened. Um, I would just be really, really sad or super angry and pretty much nothing in between. Um, but yeah, so it feels good to be able to, like I said, do some sort of like, I'm a time traveler, but I do not exist in the past anymore where I was living there full time. And so the last thing I'd like to ask you about is, um, not sexual or physical intimacy with your husband, although if you're, that's something you want to touch on, feel free to share it, but emotional intimacy and learning to trust. Mm. And it, was that difficult for you? Oh my or, God, yes. Talk talk about that. And if there's been an arc to it, what that has looked like. Yes. Wow. Okay. Um, trusting anybody... Um, including myself, has I think that'll be a lifelong journey. It is way easier, way smoother than it used to be. Um, I um, one of my earliest memories of my mother is her telling me, um, "This is a direct quote: uh, You cannot trust anybody. You can only rely on yourself. That's it." And I think I probably heard that from you know three years old to probably like 23 years old or something. Um, So that's the house that we grew up in was that you can't trust anybody. And in fact, like couldn't, I actually couldn't trust either of my parents. And because of what my parents were doing to my older siblings, I couldn't really trust them either. And the emotional manipulation that both of my parents were engaged in meant that I also couldn't really trust myself because for example, um, if I said to my mother, um, uh, I'm hungry, if she was not hungry or if she hadn't cooked yet um, or if there wasn't uh, enough food in the house because uh, we also grew up like really poor, like way below the poverty line poor. So, uh, you know, if any of those things occurred, if I said I'm hungry, she would say, no, you're not. And then I would think to myself, I mean, I well, I am. I'm hungry. And she would be adamant. No, you're not. No, you're not hungry. And so I, I think like, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not hungry. I don't, I don't know. She's my mom. She knows best, mm-hmm. I guess. And, and that was pretty much, pretty much anything. If I said I'm bored, no, you're not. I'm sad. No, you're not. Um, I don't want to go to school because there's kids that are bullying me. No, you're fine. That must've been really different, difficult then for you to share your feelings with or your needs with your husband. Yes. Oh gosh. Yes. Yeah. We had, um, like the first little part of our marriage where I think I was um, trying really hard to be some version of a person that I thought he wanted. And, you know, I will say, thank goodness we were, we were friends before we started dating. We were friends for a couple of years. Then we dated for a little bit and then we got married. So thank goodness we had like the foundation of friendship to fall back huge, on. Huge. Yeah. When I started to like the facade that I had built up, um, started to crumble and it, and to his credit, I will say he did not like manipulate me. He was not doing or saying anything, um, to make me act a certain way. It was me doing that thing that abused kids often do, which is like trying to mirror, trying to read the room. Um, mm. who do know. I need to be? Yes. Who do I need to be doing that mind reading thing? Um, that like abused people will often do. And yeah, I've had to learn to like put that down. So yeah, we had like the first part of our marriage where I was like kind of this other different person. And now we've got this other better part of our marriage where like we both are ourselves and um, we both get to be authentic and, and, 
and say no and mean no and say yes and mean yes. And, and we uh, are still friends, thank goodness, and been able to mm-hmm. like really heavily lean into that friendship, which is like, you know, fucking dope if I can yeah. <laughs> be honest. Um, and uh, yeah, but it's been, it has really been like really tough to like trust him and pretty much anybody, but I would say like him specifically because, you know, he's supposed to be my partner and it's tough. Um, even still sometimes like there are moments where I have to believe him if he says, okay, I hear you. Um, I have to just be like, okay, I have to, I have to believe him. And it's really tough to not do that. Like emotional spiral of Like, but did he really mean what's that? their angle? Yes. What's his angle? Oh my God. What's his angle? Yes. Having to put that down the, um, you know, cause again, the house that I grew up in, um, a slam door is a sentence, um, having like, uh, a certain type of punishment. That's a whole sentence. Um, if I slide this paper over to you and the pen over to you and you're eight years old, you have to figure out what exactly do I want? And maybe I don't even give you any actual words. I just slide the paper and the pen over and eight year old you has to figure out what is, what does she want from me? What does he want from me? And yeah, I have to un you know, unlearn that. Stop being a detective. (laughs) Yeah. Stop mind reading, stop being a detective and just trust and believe that like, if my husband say, for example, slides a piece of paper and a pen over to me that he's then going to say, uh, write this down. Write down this address. Take down this number for me or something. Like, he's going to give me the clues. He's going to tell me the information. He's not going to dick me around. Um, <laughs> excuse my language. Um, and and thankfully, he doesn't. He is, in fact, like an, a genuinely nice guy and is, is not like, a, you know, he's not a manipulator. Mm-hmm. He's not a narcissist. I feel really lucky that I didn't fall into the trap that I know a lot of abused people fall into where they end up like dating or marrying a version of their parents. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm exceedingly thankful that that did not happen to me, um, by hook or by crook, by luck, um, by my own intuition that was maybe buried, but still kind of there. And, uh, yeah, he is, thank God, an actual nice guy. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm really glad you contacted me. And, uh, again, anybody, uh, that wants to share their thoughts and feelings with you, just do it through me, email me through the website and I'll pass it along to Eddie. Yeah. Thanks, Eddie. Thank you so much. Many, many thanks. Really enjoyed talking to her. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. 
but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the psych... Oh, and uh, before we do that, just a, a, a Patreon update. Um, we are at around 660 uh, monthly donors, and to break even with the, the podcast, uh, we need about 1,500 uh, monthly donors. Um, there's a lot of expenses in keeping the podcast going, and um, yeah, I'm not looking to get rich from this. I'm really just looking to live a middle-class life, and we're, uh, we're way off that right now. And God, do I hate saying that out loud. But as I've said the last couple of weeks in a row, I preach that when you need help, ask for it, and I need help. So there, there you have it. It's patreon.com slash mental pod and you can also find the link through uh, our website which is mentalpod.com and there's all kinds of uh, rewards at different tiers that you can you can qualify for this is from the psych ward experiences and this is filled out by Catherine, who is uh she's 28 and she says i was hospitalized because of severe anorexia but also depression and ptsd Describe your experience. A doctor told me that I would be dead in a few months if I didn't change something quick and start eating. I was absolutely terrified of hospitals because of a traumatic hospitalization after an accident over 10 years ago, but I couldn't deal with the pain of starvation and my body shutting down any longer, so I went. I was a shadow of a person, unable to comply with the strict rules of the unit because of my illness, but also terrified of retaliation. It was difficult for me to give up the control, but the psychologists, doctors, and nurses were so gentle and took me seriously. I felt taken care of for the first time after 10 years in the mental health system. After a few weeks, I even felt safe there and was able to open up and find new paths to spirituality and creativity and therapy. I started to feel more like a human again. I'm still as mentally ill as before, but the months at the hospital saved my life, and I will always be grateful to live in a country with good public health care. Clearly, she's a foreigner, and a social safety net. I wish I would have gone earlier, like seven years ago, when my therapist tried to admit me, and I refused and never saw her again. Maybe then, I wouldn't have to deal with the consequences of destroying my body and mind for so many years. Still, I am so proud of myself that I didn't give up, when it would have been the easier choice. I am in no way cured, and I still have a suicide attempt, still did have a uh, suicide attempt in the year since, but that it did help in the moment made it worthwhile to me. Thank you for that, Catherine, and I'm glad you're in a, in a better place. I know so many people, especially in this country, have terrible, terrible experiences in psych wards. Uh, this is uh, also from the the live performance, and Didi shares some fears. I fear that I will lose my beloved husband at a young age. I fear that depression will return and take away this life that I am creating. Now that's a that's a good one. I think I think those of us that deal with depression, recurring depression 
treatment-resistant depression, it, it feels like a stalker sometimes. Like even when we're in a good place, it's like, oh, I know it's looking for my address right now. And there's going to be a knock on the door. That's the struggle, is to enjoy the reprieves when they come and not obsess about when it when it's going to return. Didi shares some loves. I love when my dog gives me what I call his daily morning hug. He stretches out on my chest and puts his head next to mine. He's a chihuahua and his birthday is this Friday. He'll be 14. R.I.P. Herbert's butthole. You must be a longtime listener. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to your, your little chihuahua. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Ishmael. And uh, he asks, as a longtime listener, I was happy to hear the return of likes and loves in the Moby episode. Why did you stop doing them? I hope you'll bring them back. I'm not sure why I started, um, stopped doing them. I think because I felt like I was just starting to regurgitate the same ones and it felt like it would be, I don't know, um, too much pressure for my guests to just have them keep coming up with them. But, um, yeah, thank you for asking that. Any comments to make the podcast better? Patreon is great, but if you really want to make money, you need an OnlyFans. I've never been on OnlyFans, and I think I know what it is. And uh, so I'm uh, currently, actually as I speak, I'm shaving my chest and oiling up. I'll let you know when, when you can start. Suggesting not only poses, but uh, ways that I will, occupations that I will dress up as. I got a construction worker hat. Uh, one of them, it's a little off the beaten track. It's a tailor. Yeah, a 19th century tailor. This is from the Shame and Secret survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Steve. He uh, identifies as straight. He's in his 40s. Says that he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused. He's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, most of the adult males in my life as a kid were assholes. Any positive experiences with abusers? It has turned me into a protector of those not able to protect themselves. Um, darkest thoughts, leaving my wife and kids and going to the mountains. Darkest secrets. It's not a secret, but I killed someone in self-defense. It's always weighed heavy, but I've had lots of therapy. Oh, I can't imagine the weight of that even if it wasn't in self-defense. Wow. Wow. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having sex with a, quote, slutty girl because I feel I don't deserve a good one. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Why my dad is such a selfish person that he wouldn't want to know his grandchildren. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish depression didn't exist. Yeah, let me know where, where we can all vote on that one. Have you shared these things with others? Somewhat. It is what it is. How do you feel after writing these things down? Every little bit helps. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I think it gets better with time. You have to be proactive. So true, especially the proactive part. 
That's why I, I, I try anything and everything. See what, see what sticks to the wall. Thank you for that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and Maureen uh, asks, not sure if you'd be willing to answer this, but can you share a time when you did something that went against your moral code and regretted it? I once, uh, in the parentheses, for months of a relationship, didn't tell my partner that I had HPV because doctors had told me not to, even though I thought it was deeply wrong. I feel very guilty about it and keep ruminating. He also got mad when I told him. Uh, I actually had, uh, when I was in my 20s, I had it. And I had sex with someone and I did not tell them. And I later did tell them. And of all the amends that I have made, I think that one might have been the scariest. Um, So yeah, I've absolutely... I mean, that's why I got help, was living a life that that went against my moral code. I'd always defined my character as what I intended to do. And I had a moment of clarity where I, where I had to say, well, let's look at what I'm actually doing. Uh, that's where the gap needed addressing was between the intent and the whether or not I was actually growing into the person I wanted to be. And I feel like if you want to truly apologize to the people you've hurt, work on yourself. Put the effort in. Make a living amends, as they say. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Black Sheep White Wolf. She uh, is in her 30s, identifies as straight, and was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. She writes, I don't remember ever being touched, but from around the age of five, my father exposed me to horror movies and highly sexualized ones at that. We would go out gallivanting as our quality time away from mom. These day trips would include things like horseback riding, eating hot dogs, and visiting the women he was sleeping with at the time. One time he brought me to a woman's house, gave me a metal slinky, and went into the woman's bedroom. Another time, we visited my first grade teacher and I played outside with her child while he went inside with her. She left the school that year too. He would make comments about women's bodies all the time. He would comment on how my body would change as well. Really uncomfortable. I ended up thinking that any man who would fuck me was confirming I was acceptable and attractive. Never mattered the quality of the man. It was just validating to know I was desirable to a man. You don't have to be touched to experience sexual abuse, violation, incest, whatever you want to call it. The things that your your father did, um, that's a form of sexual abuse. Exposing a child to a sexually charged environment, having them be your wing person while they're cheating on your mom, commenting on your body, commenting on women's bodies. Super fucked up. It doesn't matter the envelope that the message arrives in that tells you that you don't matter. Whether it's you're getting beaten, verbally abused, um, sexualized, Uh, She's also been physically and emotionally abused. My mother was physically abusive towards me. My father was abusive towards her. 
My mother would bash my head on the hallway slate tiles, slap my face, rip out my hair, spit in my face. In addition to that, the mental, verbal, and emotional abuse was all-encompassing. I was never good enough. She would also leave me with strangers while she went out partying. The only things we ever did together was when she would bring me to her pyramid scheme meetings or strange basement religious events. My father would beat my mother for any sort of perceived indiscretion, and I bore witness to all of it. The most traumatic event was when I was six and my brother was one. I remember sitting in the hallway and watching my father pile drive my mom onto the kitchen floor. I grabbed my brother and ran upstairs to call for help. I called my grandma's house and just screamed that he was going to kill her. Nothing got better. Wow. Wow. I can't imagine how difficult it must be for you to trust or feel safe in the world. Any positive experiences with abusers? When my parents divorced at 11, my dad moved away and I only saw him monthly. In retrospect, it was the it was the best that I stayed away from him due to distance and work. But when I was a child, he was the parent that loved me and didn't hit me. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I think about walking away from my life, breaking all my ties, leave my kids and house and just go start over. We get that one a lot in the surveys. Darkest secrets. When I was about 10, I started touching my neighbor's privates when we would hang out. He was eight. It happened twice, both times in the pool. Um, and then this, this, uh, her survey got cut off right there. And that's, that's all there is. But I wanted to read that because, uh, that's intense. That's intense. One of the things when we did the, uh, the waiting room support group was I expressed doubt sometimes about the heavy surveys that that i read and the uh the people in the in the group uh said that no they often find comfort in the in the dark surveys so it's good to know that that's just the mean voice in my head this is from the ask paul anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself augusta she writes, do you have any episodes about autism in adults? I'm particularly interested in low needs, and that's in quote, late diagnosed autism in women. Any uh, topic that you are interested in, to, if you want to know if there's a podcast episode on it, Google um, whatever keyword, you know, autism, and the word mental pod, and it will come up, whether it's a podcast episode or a guest blog by by somebody, but uh, I know there is definitely one with a woman, and I believe we called her Louise. We used a pseudonym uh, for her, and that was a really, really good episode. So I don't know if that one fits the bill for what you're looking for, but thank you. Thank you for asking that. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Amazon Lady. I know there's a joke in there somewhere. She identifies as pansexual. She's in her 30s, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She writes, it was pretty dysfunctional, but it never felt that way growing up. I always felt like we were a well-off family because my parents were both in law enforcement and we had relatively nice things. 
Looking back, though, I can see it for what it truly was. She was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. When I was a little girl, uh, in the parentheses, my brain has blocked out the exact age, my grandfather would have me come sit on his lap and pull me close to his body and ask for kisses. When I would go to give him a peck, as lots of children do with their parents and grandparents, he would grab my head and kiss me with his tongue. Oh my Lord. I blocked it out for a long time and only in the past eight years or so have started remembering it. This makes me feel super fucking icky, but I also recognize that I shouldn't feel shameful about this because I was just a child. I had no idea what was or was not okay. This was a person who was supposed to be a safe adult in my life, and he abused me repeatedly. He should feel ashamed. Amen. Uh, she's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Way too many stories to share here. My entire life, I was fat-shamed by my father, who was insecure about his obese sister, despite me quite literally looking like olive oil, uh, Popeye's, Popeye's girlfriend. I have one vivid memory of being made to work out in the yard on a Saturday morning as a teenager, and when I was complaining, as any fucking teenage girl would have, I was grabbed by the throat and told, if you say one more fucking word, I'm going to throw you through the fucking wall. These were common occurrences. When I was eight years old, my dad spanked me with a belt because of my smart-ass mouth. I intentionally giggled and said, do it again. He never spanked me again. Wow, that's so interesting. A lot of times when people have shared on the podcast about parents beating them, um, they're, they're, it, it almost cr- comes across as if the parent is in some mindless fugue state because many have shared that they said something or did something that almost like woke the parent up out of some type of trance. And this kind of reminds me of of that. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yeah, I've had more positive experiences with all of my abusers, but especially the two listed above. Absolutely complicates my feelings. One of them is dead, and it feels pointless to share what happened, and the other is someone who I am still close to, but oftentimes fantasize about never having to speak to them again. Darkest thought. And that's where I think boundaries and the willingness to have difficult conversations, if you feel like it's worth it. You know, there's nothing wrong with just keeping somebody at, at, at arm's length. Um, but I think it's important to pay attention to the feelings that we feel when we're around that person, to not just, just discard them and say, well, if I, you know, say I'm uncomfortable or I don't want to meet up for dinner this Sunday, then I'm a terrible person abandoning my parent. No, you deserve to feel safe. And it is unkind to yourself to put yourself into situations that are emotionally and mentally unhealthy for you. Darkest thoughts. The intrusive thoughts consume me, but the biggest ones would probably be incest, which makes perfect fucking sense according to my therapist, given what I have endured. Darkest secrets. I am so ashamed that I knowingly slept with a married man as a young woman, that my grandfather molested me, that my ex-husband would force me to have sex with him even after saying no. 
Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Orgies. Sharing that makes me feel horny and curious. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Why the fuck did you do that to me? I was a defenseless child. You told everyone I was your favorite, and now I know why. You're disgusting and despicable for that. You don't deserve to be worshipped by the rest of the family the way that you are. What, if anything, do you wish for? For peace in my soul and to feel truly happy, not this fake-it-till-you-make-it bullshit. I'm so sick of fucking masking all the time. I'm tired. You know, given what you just wrote there, I would really, really encourage you to ask yourself, should I expose myself to being around these people who it hurts to be around, who drain me? Have you shared these things with others? Only my therapist and my best friend slash cousin. They're both very safe people to share with, so it went very well. Thought I'd very much like to one day be able to tell my mom what a sick fuck her dad was. How do you feel after writing these things down? About the same. I'm very open with talking about and sharing my experiences, especially in a format such as this, where it's completely anonymous. Yeah, we don't uh, even collect the IP addresses as uh, a lot of surveys uh, do because I want people to absolutely feel free uh, to be able to to share anything on these. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are not your thoughts or experiences. For those who have endured any type of abuse, it was not your fault. It is not your responsibility to own the actions of others. It is only your responsibility to own your own actions. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Benji. And he writes, today the weather was gray and dreary. I went into town to run some errands. I took an old film camera with me, thinking I might go for a walk along the beach later. I bought a few things, which were more expensive than I expected, and I started worrying about the miserable state of my finances. My mood got worse and worse as I ruminated. I sat down on a bench for a while, feeling terribly lonely and on the verge of tears. Life didn't seem to be worth living. I decided to give up on my walk and go home, but then a passing stranger noticed my camera and told me there was a seal on the beach nearby. I went and looked, and there was this beautiful creature lying on the pebble beach, occasionally stretching its muscles, yawning, and waggling its flippers. I was able to get quite close to it and took some black and white photos, which I think will be great when I develop them. The seal kept looking at me with its beautiful dark eyes, and it almost seemed to be deliberately posing for me. I felt some kind of meaningful connection between me and the animal, and as I became absorbed in observing the seal and operating my camera, I forgot about my dark thoughts, and my gloom lifted. After a while, the seal wiggled back into the sea and swam away, leaving me with a deep feeling of gratitude for the encounter. Love it. Both of those in caps and nine exclamation points. Is that is that me being over the top? If that's me being over the top, I don't want to be under the top. Thank you for that, Benji. That 
just moments like that, man. I think so much of life can just be trying to string together moments like that when the, when it feels like the we can't get out of that ruminating space. And um, I think that's why hobbies are so important and nature is so important. Anyway, thank you for that. And thank you to everybody who came out to see the the performance on Wednesday. Thank you to everybody who supports me, um, whether it's filling out a survey, giving a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing, all of that stuff helps. And um, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.